Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. You can feel the passion, the emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds are European champions. Hey yeah, BBB fans, welcome to Believe in Borussia episode number 35. It's been a minute since we were on with our last episode, but mind you, we have a good one for you this week. My name is Tilo and I'm your host on this wonderful podcast. Much has happened since the last episode, but nothing really of significance or at least positive. Um, but we used the time off to return with our patented Borussia Dortmund history and we will shine a light on the 1930s in this episode. We're in the middle of March and the season is kind of toast. Again, out of the cup competitions in pretty embarrassing fashion and the league is not looking too hot either. I don't understand really why a lot of people um, in my surroundings act like four points um, in the middle of March is good, especially looking at the last couple of games, the round of form, a 1-1 against Augsburg, which I think put the nail in the coffin of the whole championship aspirations this year. Um, then a 1-0 against Bielefeld, a 1-0 against Mainz. We aren't exactly playing lights out. The run of form isn't fantastic or telling me like this team will now reel off seven straight W's and actually which would be necessary beat Bayern um, they're more than a game behind so Bayern could lose 5-0 and then Dortmund would probably find a way to tie whatever game they have to play that match day but even if they win they'd still be behind by a point and you know Bayern can apparently still find another gear if they have to as they showed for example against Salzburg where people also were like oh my god they played so poor in the first leg and then in the home game they just thrashed them I mean, they literally took him to the woodshed. So again, not really sure where this is coming from. Maybe of the, yeah, again, very poor cup performances. This looks a little better now, but I'm just thinking if this would be a run of form, say in October, and we had the same kind of results with this same sort of like throw together squad trailing by four points. I would think people would be pretty pessimistic and just go like, oh my god, we are already struggling so hard against these teams. How are we going to um, actually make put up a real challenge for the league? And that's with 20 plus games in hand. Now there's only a few more to play. And for some reason, just because it's not completely out of reach, um, there is some hope coming back. Well, I mean, I take the hope, but I... I'm not very optimistic, to be fair. And it doesn't really matter at this point whether the club will win in Cologne because, again, four points is not really exuding a lot of pressure on Bayern. If you're a game behind, I think it's a different story because that means that each and every game that Bayern plays, there is a chance that they will slip out of first. But they have this safety net of an extra game, basically, in hand. And the only time we play them will be in their own stadium where we haven't really fared fantastic over the last couple of years. And again, run of form, the personal available isn't really screaming, we will destroy them. 
or beat them for that matter. So I don't really think anybody's too worried down there in Munich and a whole lot has to happen and come together for Dortmund to pull it out. It's still possible and I hope the players are still putting in the work and believing and if I listen to like Emre Chan, for example, after last game, I think he is, which is great and he needs so that's his job. Just I personally, well, I am not decorating the house yet for championship celebrations. Let's put it like this. But hey, March, many things can still happen and it's famous for its madness. So speaking about madness and hope, if you're a hoop fan and chances are you're at least a sports fan listening to this podcast, then you should definitely put some action down with our sponsor Bet Online. Um, if it's not hoops, then maybe bet on, well, Manchester City fumbling the Champions League against Atletico Madrid, just as PSG did against Real. You know, those dear traditions of Champions League that we all cherish so much. And you can just head over to their website, uh, use your mobile device, sign up today, receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, just using the promo code BLEAV to get started for belief. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. So you get your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. And again, just use your code BLAV to get you started. All right, before we get into the history part, I'm gonna just brush over a few of the games and things that happened um, over the last couple of weeks, including, well, the last game, the Bielefeld game. And one thing, uh, that stood out to me was the VAR handball versus foul situation. I can totally understand for you to wanting to get it right and check it, but if you do that, then get it right not just 50% of the time, but 100% of the time. How can you look at one thing and take it back, but then not opt to look at the clear foul that happened just seconds before and sort of just ignore it? I mean, how is that any fairer than, than the other way around. It's just this this time you're you're flipping the coin after watching the screen versus before where you make a different call. It's not very logical in my mind. Like seriously, look at the play. The silver lining here, of course, the clean sheet, a rare occasion for Gregor Kobel, who has done his most to um, keep goals out and yet has been let down over and over again. So it's actually a silver lining with a sad face because how is it that we can hold on with this backline? Okay, it's Bielefeld and of course Mainz, but it just shows that mentality beats talent. And if we're performing worse with more talent on the pitch, when there's Hummels, Akanji and so on and so forth, well, what is lacking then? It's pretty clear, unfortunately, and that kind of sucks. Now, I don't even know who to root for because normally a fullback combo of um, Felix Passlack and Nico Schultz isn't necessarily super reassuring. But then at the end of the day, if I can see a unit out there that's fighting and I thought they did fight really well, and I think they played very cohesively against Mainz, for example, and also against Bielefeld, then that's sometimes more satisfying than seeing people with in theory, more talent and a much higher ceiling underperform over and over again. Oh well. 
Speaking of performance, Matthias Sammer's contract has been prolonged. He will now be with the club for another couple of years until 2025 and apparently at a reduced rate, which is, you know, super nice and kind of necessary considering we're still in dire straits financially thanks to the pandemic and the, yeah, on and off opportunities for having fans in the stadium and just in general the reduced marketing profits. But it's always good to have counsel. The question is just how effective is it? And in that case, how valuable is it, right? Um, Jurgen Klopp once said, when Matthias Sammer was still with Bayern Munich, um, that Bayern Munich would not get a single point less without Matthias Sammer, and that Matthias Sammer should thank his lucky star that Bayern chose to add them to their already very successful team. Now, I personally think Matthias Sammer is super smart, and he's obviously extremely experienced. Man, despite his long injury history, has won a couple of big, big trophies. He won the Ballon d'Or, of course, in 96, uh, the Euros, uh, you know, German League, Champions League, you name it. He was the youngest coach to ever win the German League with Borussia Dortmund as well. And I think, yeah, he has tremendous insights and a lot of um, things in and around the game. So definitely a super interesting person to have around. But what he was brought in, at least in my understanding, was to improve the culture because he was famous or infamous depending on who you ask for his grinding diehard win mentality like Matthias Sama turned everything into a fight everything he drew red lines around him everywhere just as red as his uh yeah hair back in the days and yeah just started trouble where there was none I guess you know one of the guys that seemed that that, that played better when he was electrified by some sort of tension and tension he created all around within the team within the club even though he's usually a super mellow fellow but um that's just sort of like his mo and again in my understanding considering that the team didn't really have much tension or edges uh, back in the days and doesn't really have it now i thought that's what he was supposed to bring a desire to win accountability and just putting the finger where it hurts well he's been with Dortmund now for a couple of years and he's been overseeing some of the biggest choke jobs in Borussia Dortmund history I guess most notably the one in 2019 um, when the team gave up nine points at the halfway mark or actually after the halfway mark to Bayern for example so I gotta wonder Has he succeeded um, in upping this culture? The verdict's still out. I can't really say, and that's because I don't have the insight into that, what his contributions are in certain areas of the club, maybe also in terms of um, player scouting and so on and so forth. But I think it's fair to say that Borussia Dortmund hasn't necessarily reached the next level yet. Um, that's not to say that that can't happen. And with the new setup um, with Sebastian Kale and, you know, more, you know, basically um, maybe also Terzic and, and him in Watzke, who knows? Um, better things might be yet to come. And obviously the Zula transfer, and again, have no idea if Zama even had a hand in this or 
um, any sort of involvement. But the Zula transfer was obviously uh, one of those moments, and it seemed to be a change in the club in terms of their aspirations and buying power and whatnot. And we discussed this already at length um, in the previous episode. And let's round out the current events with another super fun topic, Europa League. I obviously interviewed Mark Donaldson, um, the ESPN expert and uh, commentator on this show on this last episode just before the return leg. And no surprises there. Dortmund went out of the Europa League and the result of the first game at home at the Westfalenstadion was simply too much to overcome. No surprises there. Yes, they showed effort and heart in the second leg, but why do we have to wait two legs to see it? And thirdly, it wasn't still a great game by Borussia Dortmund either. And I don't know why the team played the way it did. I just know there needs to be some changes. And maybe you have to just blame it on the shirts, these interesting uh, neon designs. Um, but that's probably a little simplistic. There have to be some changes. It just seems... In general, and that's for the other comp competition, for some of the league games, they're just players that either they care, but they just don't have the level of skill that's necessary to play at the highest level in Europe and in Germany, night in, night out. And I'm thinking of somebody like Felix Paslak, for example, um, or Nico Schultz, um, who I'm sure have you know big hearts and definitely Paslak is a Dortmund boy. Um, he lives and breathes this club. And when he's on the pitch, he gives his all for the shirt. But unfortunately, he's not necessarily blessed with as much talent as, say, a Rafa Guerrero. So then you have the other side where we have players that have the skill, but apparently not enough conviction. And Rafa definitely pops to the top of my mind. Torgan Toto Hazard also had some very dubious showings uh, lately. And again, hard to tell sometimes when they're coming off an injury, but it just doesn't seem like there's always 110% behind it. And then there's just players that are playing bad and just, just sitting out good contracts. Um, and why do they have good contracts? Well, because people were always screaming that we're losing all our players left and right. So guess what? we started paying the players a little more money to keep them. And that might still not be enough to keep um, somebody like Erling Haaland around, but it definitely is good enough for, well, a Roman Berkey and Axel Witzel, um, you know, who scored an important goal against Mainz, and I'm happy he did. I'm really happy for Axel because he did get a lot of crap. But at the same time, if you look at what we're paying and what we're getting, that value proposition there has um, become worse over the last couple of years. So outside Gregor Kobel, maybe Earl, but he's injured a lot too. And Jude, there's just too much inconsistency. And apparently it's not necessarily just a team or a club issue. Um, if you look, for example, at Ashraf Hakimi, who a lot of people would probably want back. Um, if you saw the PSG... Uh, Real Madrid Champions League game, he was the one that put Benzema on side for the 2-1. And he displayed these sort of like lack of urgency that drives me up a tree with so many Dortmund players too. He's coming back on a counter from Real Madrid and he thinks his job is done because he's in the box. 
the player uh, Benzema is too far away, Modric and everyone there are like too far out. So he thinks he's done and he switches off because he's not that alert right now. He fails to step out that second earlier, that split second even early, and boom, Modric plays the pass on Benzema. Guess who's getting caught with the pants down, figuratively speaking, on defense? Ashraf Hakimi and... That's the Champions League knockout for you right there. And that's the game. And, you know, I don't understand why you even would want to switch off in a game like that. You're playing Real Madrid at the Bernabeu. It's your hometown. Ashraf Hakimi grew up there. It's basically the club he loves. I would be so energized. You would probably have to reel me in after the game and like lock me into a room for a couple of hours just to calm down. How are you thinking or even, I don't know, I I don't understand that mentality. I really don't. And it's the same attitude that he displayed back in the days versus Tottenham um, with Borussia Dortmund. That sort of like lackadaisical um, moment. Yeah, like soccer is not just dribbling and scoring. Like you touch the ball a couple of minutes tops a game. And that's for the people that actually are like in the center midfield. Some people touch it for... I don't know, 90 seconds, two minutes, tops. You make the game happen in these other areas with these tiny decisions that you have to make over and over again. How close are you getting? Are you keeping touch on your guy? Are you maybe pulling the shirt a little bit just so the referee can't tell, but the other uh, opponent knows that you're there? Trying to get in the set. I don't know. Be close to him at set pieces. All this kind of stuff that you can do. And it's not a skill issue. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of an attitude and execution issue. That's problems that we have a Borussia Dortmund too. And it's super annoying because, again, I don't think it's necessary skill. It's just a matter of like identifying it, making pulling people accountable, and then executing. And that we can't get this done. Um, it's annoying. And it's not the fact that I can't live with a trophy last season. I can. Look, this isn't Bayern Munich, Real Madrid or whatever. Borussia Dortmund doesn't have to win all the competitions all the time. But Borussia Dortmund should always be competitive. And to be competitive, they need to max the opportunities they have. And that's the annoying part. You look at what's possible. You see the talent out there. But then it doesn't gel together. And it hasn't for a while. And that's why... I am not too optimistic for the rest of the league as well. Clearly, we will continue to watch and, you know, cross our fingers and hope for the best. But probably some more changes will be needed. And who knows? They might not have to be so major. Um, Sometimes you're closer than you think you are. But right now, it doesn't seem like the connection is there. But now it is time to look at Borussia Dortmund's history once again in our series where we already dealt with the founding decade 1900, the 1910s, the 1920s in episode 27, 28 and 30 if you want to re-listen those again. And in this episode we will have a look at the 1930s of Borussia Dortmund in our Believe in Borussia's History segment for you right now.
The 1930s were a tumultuous decade, and the onset of the darkest chapter in German history period with the rise of fascism and nationalism. But before Adolf Hitler seized power in Germany, many people were still recovering from the echoes of the First World War, which led to an equally tumultuous 1920s, and of course, at the end, the big recession. And one of the favorite pastimes, a new pastime, was this game called soccer or Fußball in Germany. And in the West, the 1930s began with a bang. Borussia Dortmund, in its quest to become a top club, regularly playing for the championship, had played with fire in the 1920s, secretly paying players despite their amateur status and the regulations that forbade to give players any sort of money. Nevertheless, it was very common amongst all teams throughout Germany because soccer had become a business. Tens of thousands of people would turn up on the weekends and watch the big clubs play and none of the clubs was bigger in the West than Schalke 04. Well, Borussia Dortmund wanted to catch up and play with the big boys and clandestinely raised 12,000 Reichsmark to pay players under the table and they avoided being expelled by the German FA only by secretly repaying their debt and basically taking it off the table again. Well, Schalke 04 had 14 of its players suspended for breaching their amateur status and paying them. And unlike today, people in Dortmund and around the West as a whole very much cared what happened 50 miles west of Dortmund at Schalke. Because Schalke at the time, as I said, was the best in the West. They were the flag bearer for the whole region. While Borussia Dortmund was playing in the third and second division, Schalke was playing for the German championship in the finals, in the big game. They won the league 17 out of 18 times from 1927 to 1944. They were the gold standard. And because there was such a divide between Borussia Dortmund and Schalke 04, there wasn't really much of a rivalry. Borussia Dortmund was sort of your local team, maybe compared to your college team or something. And Schalke, well, they were everyone's favorite in the Ruhrpott in general, the coal and steel region in the west of Germany where both Schalke and Dortmund are located. Well, on a national level, the 1920s had been dominated by teams like Nuremberg and Fourth, who are now back in the first division, but probably not for long. But in the 1920s, these two teams from the neighboring regions in Franconia, Bavaria, were the ones to beat. Enter Schalke, pride of the West, the dirty, grimy mining towns with a new exciting playing style in the soccer versus the bourgeois southerners with their antiquated game. So when the FA expelled the club and 14 of its players for paying them up to 20 Reichsmark instead of the maximum allowed 5 Reichsmark travel expense, people in the West smelled a plot to freeze out the coal-covered upstarts from the rural region that were clearly bound for the national title sooner or later. The penalty seemed so severe, expelling club and players indefinitely, basically for life, prohibiting them from participating in the game and going to the championship rounds of soccer so that teams from Firth and Nuremberg and Hamburg and all these other bourgeois, um, white-collar neighborhoods and regions would not have to cross swords with these dirty mining kids. Did they take the money? Yes, they did. But so did everyone else. Ernst Kutzora, the club's biggest star at the time, and 
Legend of the highest order at Schalke. He is to Schalke what Johan Cruyff is to Barcelona, what Georgie Best is to Manchester United. Well, said Ernst Kuzora would allegedly enter the dressing room and when the stadium was packed, instead of lacing them up, he would walk out there in his regular clothes, take a look around, do a quick count of the attendance and come back inside and say, hey, there's 40,000 people out there. I want you to slip, I don't know, a tenner into each of me and my teammates' boots or else I'm not playing. And can you blame the man? I don't think you can really. He's making you thousands of marks back then, probably equally to millions of dollars today, and you're giving him five marks of travel expenses? Mm, doesn't really add up. Sure, there was this whole amateur compete love for the sport kind of vibe to it, but at the end of the day, somebody was making money, and why shouldn't it be the players? Not only was it a ridiculously outdated rule, even at that point, but other clubs were surely cutting corners too. Yet, only the Westerners were banned, and it caused a huge ruckus, so much so that Schalke's treasurer of that time, Willie Neer, committed suicide in shame. Think about that. This wasn't a laughing matter, and just a slap on the wrist. Eventually, the FA revoked the bans, and within a year allowed players and club to come back. And if it wasn't for the Nazis who would outlaw professional sport, period, as unpure and un-German, it would have been probably the tipping point to ring in the professional game in Germany. Instead, it took until 1963 for the German FA to abandon the amateur status and professionalize soccer in Germany. Meanwhile in Dortmund, they were frying much smaller fish. Because there was yet another league added, which happened quite a lot at the beginning of soccer. In 1929-1930, Borussia Dortmund found itself in the third league. At least the team won promotion that year and came back to the second division, where it played from 1931 to 1935. As with every aspect of life in Germany, the Nazis' rise to power in 1933 severely impacted Borussia on many different aspects. For starters... The Nazis dissolved the German FA's seven regional associations and established a new Gau League system mirroring the Gau Order, which was a regional segmentation to administer the country built like a pyramid scheme with Adolf Hitler sitting on top. That sort of Führer principle was rolled out across every imaginable aspect of public life in Germany. The Nazis also started to push Anything not Nazi out of public life. First and foremost, Jewish people, but also church folk, political left activists, unionists, and anything they deemed subversive one way or another. And clubs had to be led by a club Führer, a club leader in line that checked all of the Nazi boxes. Chairman Egon Pentrup, a Catholic and political neutral, aka not in the Nazi party, did not check these boxes and was forced out and replaced by his predecessor, August Busse. Still, Borussia Dortmund had folks from all walks of life working at the club. Its working class roots stemming from its founding in the blue color north of the city around the Hirsch steel mill also had unionists, social democrats and even communists working at the club. And one very prominent example is Heinrich Czerkos, 
but we'll talk about that later. Still, the pressure was mounting from the fascist regime to assimilate. For example, in a show of preemptive allegiance, 14 top clubs competing for the South German Championship proclaimed via the Declaration of Stuttgart, that's what it's called, their, and I quote, joyful and determined disposal to the Nazis' goals of eradicating Jewish life from the clubs. Signees included VfB Stuttgart, Bayern Munich, Mainz 05, Eintracht Frankfurt, Karlsruhe FV, who in many cases actually had prominent Jewish members, such as Bayern's president Kurt Landauer, for example, or Karlsruhe and former Germany international Julius Hirsch. So it's very hard to tell these days the level of involvement and conviction. August Busse only joined the Nazi party in 1945. Um, August Lenz, Dortmund's most prominent player of that era, became a member of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, which was a special Nazi um, organization. But it isn't clear really whether it was voluntary or obligation because he was also representing Germany at one time. Maybe it was honorary even and it wasn't really up to him. Because, again, Lenz rose from the streets of Dortmund's rugged north to national prominence and then sometimes you kind of got swept into this without necessarily being a fierce promoter of the Nazi cause. But let's back this up a bit. Because, as I said, August Lenz was a unique figure in Borussia Dortmund's history. He had been with Borussia Dortmund since the early 1920s as a student. And he'd mostly actually kept the goal which is odd because he only measured like 5'6", not too tall. And um, yeah, Blond August, or basically Blondie as he was called, hadn't really made any waves on the pitch or off of it. At age 20, he had no job. He was hustling street soccer games for beer or some grub, you know, kind of like people would, I guess, in some areas in the US, hustle, you know, on the basketball courts or things like that. But then came a fateful day when one of Borussia Dortmund's first team forwards got injured and Borussia needed a replacement striker ASAP. So in 1933, August Lenz played as a replacement striker for Borussia Dortmund and he changed the course of German soccer history. Lenz netted a bucket load of goals in a 12-14-0 thrashing. It's not really clear really how high the damage was for the opponent of Borussia Dortmund and he netted at least seven, maybe even as many as 11 goals. Definitely enough to show that he was a generational forward talent, a prototypical central forward for the popular WM formation of the day. It was a lineup with an attack shaped like a W with two wingers, a central tip and two hanging strikers and he fitted perfectly. As Lenz was rather small, he was quicker than the others and he could unleash thunder with his left and right boot. And in a day and age where one talented player could make or break a club, Lenz was Borussia's answer to Schalke great Schepmann and Ernst Kutzura. And speaking of Kutzura, the Schalke great and six-time German champion actually became Borussia Dortmund's first ever coach. His brother-in-law and former Schalke ace Fritz Thelen was packed for the job, but he was busy for the first weeks of the 1935 season, so his brother-in-law and still active player, Ernst Kutzora, stepped in for the first weeks. Just let that sit for a moment. 
Ernst Kuzora, Schalke's biggest legend of them all, was Borussia Dortmund's first coach. How curious. Anyway, when Fritz Thelen became fit again and took over the reins from Kuzora, he immediately professionalized the practice regiment. He kept the players honest, gave him a small allowance, and he made sure they had enough to eat, which wasn't a given. Making a deal with the Wiltschitz restaurant, the very establishment that Borussia Dortmund was founded at. And it had been 25 years since these 18 young men in 1909 gathered that fateful December night and to commemorate the 25th birthday of the club, Chairman Busse commissioned the writing of the club anthem Wir halten fest und treu zusammen and you can check out our very first episode to learn more about the BBB club anthem. And for the club itself, more good things were to come. With the new coach and the prodigal forward lens, Borussia Dortmund was finally ready to return to top flight soccer. And just how good was August Lenz? Well, he was good enough to win his first cap for Germany while still playing for a relatively unbeknown second division team in the West called Borussia Dortmund. And yet he netted twice on his debut for Germany. He played in the second division and was still scoring in the national team. If August Lenz would have gone to say Dortmunder SC 95, which were the soccer pioneers from Dortmund's posh south, there would likely be a different Dortmund team in the Bundesliga today. And Borussia Dortmund, that would sound to you as strange as, say, Sportclub Applerbeck 09 Dortmund. Just some local team in Germany that, you know, seems like one or the other. But he didn't. And he was living proof that one could accomplish great things at Borussia and you raised the club's reputation significantly and he led them back into the Gauliga Westfalen in 1936, the highest division which Borussia would remain in for the next 36 years. So it all starts with this promotion in 1936 and leads to almost four decades of Borussia Dortmund playing highest level of soccer in Germany. But just when one was to forget the issues of the day amidst the thrill of competing against the best again, the Nazis showed their fascist face when they disowned Borussia Dortmund of its home of the Borussia Sportplatz. Gearing up for the war, the Nazis planned to use the space as a recreational area for the expanding Hirsch steel mill. The club's spiritual and geographical closeness to the steel mill now became a problem. Borussia was homeless and had to look for a new ground. And the best it could do was a sparsely used stadium in the city's upscale residential south. The Rote Erde Kampfbahn, the Red Soil Fighting Course, was to be the substitute ground and many club members hated it. First of all, it was far away from the Borsigplatz. The center of Borussia Dortmund, where many of its players and fans lived, worked and gathered for their social life, their church, their epicenter of their social life. It was over an hour by foot to walk there and very few people had cars or means of transportation to get there otherwise. And it had very, very little in common with the rough blue-colored north of the city where people have been a little less sophisticated and a little straighter to your face, but at least you would know what you're getting where in the south it was houses families, nice residential areas, quiet, not exactly 
the place for a vibrant and growing club. As if there would be any need for more proof, but the Nazis were a ruthless dictatorship and opposing that decision could have had deadly consequences. And falling out of grace was very, very easy to do at this time. Take August Lenz. One day, he was the new bright star of the German national team and he was also the first Olympian for Borussia Dortmund. The 1936 Olympics in Berlin were Hitler's grand propaganda show. The 1936 Olympic Games gave the world theater, pageantry and excitement, all under the banner of the swastika. This stunning act of propaganda would be emulated by all subsequent Olympics. It was an operatic production, lavish in scale. It really invented Olympic ritual for all time to come. He had built a fancy new stadium, the Olympic Stadium in Berlin, nowadays home to Hertha Berlin. He had dialed down the public persecution of some of the minorities and Jews, pleading innocent in front of the eyes of the world. But what he really wanted was Germans to win, take all the gold and underline all his pseudo-scientific theories of racial superiority and all that gross BS. But unfortunately, it seems that no one had looped in Norway on the grand scheme of Hitler for Germany to win everything, including soccer gold. And Norway defeated Germany in a back then very infamous game 2-0. August Lenz was part of the team. And let's just say the Führer wasn't very pleased and left his box pre-game. Well, the national team coach Nerz lost his job immediately and Lance lost his position. He was never really considered again for the team. And the GAU system and enforced integration of Austrian players into the German team after the Nazis annexed Austria only a couple years later made the team even worse. Putting people together for political reasons that didn't really gel on the pitch. It was a very dark time for the national team, for the country, and soon also for Borussia Dortmund, and the worst was yet to come. After having started the 1930s in the third division, Borussia Dortmund finished a decade in the first division with very respectable placings, third, second, third, and eventually ninth, um, never being able to get past Schalke, which was the undisputed champion not only in the West but in Germany raking in German championship after German championship in that time. But it all wouldn't really matter as Nazi Germany was tumbling into the greatest calamity in German history and maybe in the history of Europe and the world by invading its neighboring Poland under false flag pretenses in September 1939. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Believe in Borussia. We appreciate your time and hope you will be with us for our next episode. And until then, a black and yellow shout out across America. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.